I was just this lanky Asian nerd who played chess. Aaron Maney. He's one of the UK's most successful ever YouTubers. I was getting some sort of sick thrill out of seeing the numbers go up. So I made one video every single day for at least six months. It drove me to the point where I, one time I just broke down crying on camera. Um, I never published that, but I have a, I have a photo which I sometimes look back on to remind me of like what, what it took. There's, there's some things about you that you can't fix. And I think you just have to be very mechanical about them and be like, this is me. I have good things and I have bad things, but the bad things I can't change. I'm gonna lean on the things that are good about me, fix the things I can fix, and the rest is life. Emotionally, physically, just exhaustion, I think is how I would put it. Very, very tired. It was actually a bit of a pivot point in my career because I sat down like, this isn't actually what I wanted. It, it was a realization that I've actually, you know, my channel's growing, all these metrics are looking up, but, <laughs> but this isn't, you know, uh, my brain. Uh, not many people know this actually, but. Aaron Maney. He's a creator and entrepreneur with over 8 million subscribers. His story is unconventional. A young kid from the UK that was bullied in school and whose path to escape that reality would turn out to become his dream, his purpose, his meaning. But as Aaron will tell you, he made the critical mistakes so many of us make when we're chasing our dreams. He became obsessive. He sacrificed too much things that mattered more. And at some point that would lead to him having a breakdown. And that breakdown was a moment of inflection. And he's figured out that all important balance of striving while knowing that you are already enough at the same time. And that I guess is the ultimate goal of all of our lives. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett and this is the Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Tens of millions of followers and subscribers later. Um, when I read through your story and your journey, I could see this real sort of fundamental, obsessive, um, ambitious guy under there. And it made me wonder as I was reading through about how obsessed you were with the growth and the, the scaling of your channel. It made me hypothesize that there must have been something happened in your early years that did that to you, that gave you that bug, that insatiable desire to be successful or, or something. Have you identified what that is? Yeah. Uh, so I probably, I should preface this by saying that I'm very aware I'm a very lucky person. Um, I actually just got off from my brother's wedding a couple of days ago and I was just looking around at the the family around me, the friends around me thinking like, damn, like, you know, this is it. Um, but there was one thing. So when I was growing up, I had a very supportive family but I didn't have a great school life. You know, I was, I was just this lanky Asian nerd who played chess. That was, that was me mm. basically. Um, and I think there was some part of me that did seek approval. And, uh, I mean, all this really happened when my brother got me my first smartphone and that just became my outlet. You know, on one hand I had this school life that was very, very mediocre, but then I had this, this piece of technology in my hand that could do all these things. And I just became obsessed with it. Like this was my life. So, yeah, I guess. Um, and I just poured everything into it. I learned everything about this phone and how to do all these things on it. And I think it just got to the point where I was like, let's make a video. How old were you when you were, you were that, you described yourself as a lanky 
Asian kid that got, got a smartphone for the first time. How old were you? 14, probably. Yeah. And, and the school you went to, what was the, what was the, what was the typically people get bullied because of what you're alluding to, right? I've heard you talk about being bullied, I think in some of the interviews you've done. Um, t- typically people get bullied because the other kids think that there's something to bully them for. Yeah. Uh, there was plenty. Um, I was a nerd. Mm. Uh, I wasn't very pretty, to be honest. Like people would regularly just call me ugly. Um, I think there was some sort of also subliminal thing about being Asian, not being like a cool thing. Um, it wasn't like a particularly Asian area, if that makes sense. Just, uh, I think a lot of things add up into you just being a bit sidelined. Was it a predominantly white school? Predominantly, yeah. I did have Asian friends, but majority of them, yeah. And so you get given this phone and that becomes your world. Yeah. What about your 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 parents, your, your immediate family? I, they're, they're amazing. They... There was obviously a little bit of questioning at the start, you know, when you're sitting in your back garden and you should be revising, but you're shooting earphones and, you know, it's like a bit of, son, what are you doing? Um, But as soon as they saw the kind of the potential in YouTube, they've been just like all for it. Did they understand what it was? Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm quite lucky. Like my parents are very entrepreneurial. They're very modern. Like they've done it themselves. They're also business owners. So like they they get it, you know. And were you you an entrepreneur from an early age outside of the obsession with tech. Yeah, I, I've done the usual, like, you know, like maybe selling sweets in the playground and uh, Young Enterprise. I don't know if you know what that is, yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I was like the managing director in our school for our Young Enterprise team. And I had this big idea of like, we were going to create a stylus that we were going to pitch to Tesco and sell it to them. And we created the stylus, we created the packaging. It was beautiful. It looked like an Apple product. But uh, I think... I was the only one with the vision and I didn't do a good enough job of getting my team to believe in it. And so like one man can't sell a product to a company like that, especially not like a 16 year old boy at school. Wow. So you were, you were, okay, you were trying to pitch to Tesco at 16 years old. Um, your family in terms of money, how were they? Were they? Reasonable. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, like, it's not like we had everything. Like I couldn't just ask for what I wanted, but you know, we had enough, um, And I can't complain. To be honest, I think there is a benefit to having things somewhat held back from you. Mm. Like, I think it makes you appreciate when you do have things. I mean, you've had the same, right? Yeah. 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 And so you, you cite, you cite that, um, sort of search for validation as, as being one of the real driving forces. It's the same with me. Same in my life. It's like, I talk about this in my book at tremendous length. I think that feeling like I didn't fit in created, like, it was almost like pulling a spring back made me fly off into the world as an adult trying to validate myself through like material things or followers or like, I don't know, some kind of social approval or whatever. You're, you're, you're saying that that's the similar. I think that was the, that was the springboard, but I think it's very different to that now. Like I'm no longer insecure about who I am. Uh, I'm, I'm confident in myself. And so I'm almost like immune to people telling me that they like what I do or almost, it doesn't even register because I kind of like, I'm internally quite self-aware about it. Um, so now I do things because I, I want to do them. Mm. So you get given that phone. Tell me how that leads to YouTube. Oh, well, it wasn't a great phone. It was right. like, it was pretty low end. And so like my goal in life at the time was basically to get it to score a certain amount on a benchmarking app. <laughs> 
And so I, I did everything I could to this phone. I was trying to like overclock the processor and all these kinds of things just to get it to hit this score. Because in my head, that was like, that was the sign you had a good phone. <laughs> and so it led me to, to just customize it in ways that people probably wouldn't have gone like extreme lengths. And that just, through that, I just gained knowledge. I just understood it and I was fascinated by it. Pretty smart kid if you're playing with like the processor of a phone at 14. I guess. I guess. <laughs> You, so how were you academically? Pretty good, actually. I, I think, without blowing my own trumpet, I think every exam, I've, <laughs> every exam I've sat, I've got the highest mark in. So, when, what, what sort of topics were you um, particularly interested in when you were younger? I was quite mathematical. There was something about, so I did maths and further maths as two of my A-levels. And to start with, there was an element of you can feel a bit lost in those presentations when you're getting taught. Because if you miss one line of reasoning, you, you, you lose the whole thing. But when it all comes together, when you finally understand mathematics, it's, there's nothing quite like it. Like it's its own rule set. And you can prove things in ways that are completely indisputable. And I just, I love the language. Mm. And so a lot of my background is actually economics. I went to do an economics degree. And I think that completely changes the lens through which you view the world. You, you can see things instead of being like lots of gray areas, you see things in black and white. Oh, this is why that person is doing that thing. Oh, this is the next logical step for my business. Right. And, and so you go to university okay, in the pursuit of what career? Uh, yeah. So I was about to become a consultant at Pricewaterhouse. Right. Uh, I did like a, an eight week internship there at uni and, uh, got the job, um, but probably the turning point was actually when I turned down that job. I had to write up this little email being like, had a great time, really enjoyed it, but actually, no. <laughs> so YouTube has been kind of like building up in the background since the age of 14, 15. And throughout uni, I was still doing it, but it was not at a stage where it was a comfortable career path, mm -hmm. but it was an exciting career path. And so I had, this, I had these two kind of crossroads I could have gone down. It was either the traditional route or the YouTube route. And one side was just, was just fascinating to me. It was, you know, this whole new world, the sky was the limit. And I thought it's got to, it's got to be that one. And when, when, when was the first time you made a video? Was it when you were 14 and you first got that phone? Pretty much. Yeah. Take me through that growth journey then. So you start, what was the first video? Oh gosh. Uh, it was how to optimize the ZTE blade, no <laughs> which fun. is the phone I oh, had okay. at the time. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and is that still on online? Yeah. And how did that video do at the time? <laughs> I'm sure some people have gone back I, and watched it now. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you looked at it now, it probably has a couple of hundred thousand views because of people who've gone back and looked. At the time, I just remember being blown away by the reception. I'm sure if I actually knew now what the views were at the start, it wouldn't be very impressive, but I couldn't believe that even a thousand people were watching it. Mm. You know, if I, if I thought about my circles at the time, I was thinking things in terms of single people. Mm. And so when you see a number like a thousand, you're like, oh my God. Mm. And, and how long did it take before you hit that a point where you thought, fucking hell, this is, this is going really well? I thought it was going really well when my first video hit 5,000 views, you know. I remember showing my friend at his house and he's like, that's not you. Come on, behave yourself. That's not you? <laughs> well, yeah, as in like, he's like, there's no way you got 5,000 views. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I, I was very, I guess maybe it's part of that whole, I had no validation at school meant that my bar for what counted as validation was pretty low. You know, like when people said, 
they hit 100,000 subscribers, I'd watch other YouTubers. I never dreamed of that. Like I never even thought that was an option. I was just kind of doing YouTube to get a few thousand clicks, I guess. Do you, do you think that um, your YouTube journey has given you, because you said now that you feel like you're a confident person. Do you think YouTube has done that? Yes, but only if only because I've been quite proactive about it. So YouTube is, it's a really incredible thing in the sense that like, in no other career path can you get such immediate feedback. Like when I post a video within one minute, there might be 10,000 people watching it. There might be a thousand comments or 500 comments. And every single one of these data points, how many likes and dislikes it's got, that is a piece of data that tells you how you're doing. And so like, you can grow so quickly as a person, as well as a channel, if you know how to harness that data, companies would kill for it. It sounds like emotionally dangerous for, for, for <laughs> the crowd to be giving you feedback on who you are. Potentially. You, you develop a thick skin, I think, as you go through it, providing you have the right mindset. And I think as long as you can filter out the negativity, there is data hidden in those comments. Like you almost have to strip away a layer mm. and, and just kind of take what's useful. Is it... It sounds easier said than done to to avoid the negativity. I mean, like most of the guests that I've I've had on the podcast, when they speak about negative comments, and these might be super successful celebrities in their own field, they still admit to being triggered more so than they should by just that one that one percent negativity versus the ninety nine percent blowing smoke up ass. <laughs> yeah, so I think it it depends on if it's something you're insecure about. So if I'm insecure about I don't know, let's say the the shape of my face and someone makes a nasty comment about the shape of my face, it's going to sting. It's going to sting a little. Mm. But like, because I think over the years I've grown confident about most aspects of myself, I think I stop worrying about the negative comments because I'm, I'm okay with who I am. Yeah, I did a, did a question tag on Instagram this week. I said, if I could write a book for you, what would it be about? And one of the most popular things was confidence. Mm. So what advice would you give to um, people listening that are low in confidence about how to build build their confidence because telling that you know I was thinking of telling them all to build like a 10 million sub YouTube channel is probably not probably not attainable for everybody but I think you have a very similar opinion to me on this which is that you need to make it input based rather than output based you can't pin yourself to a certain number of followers or anything so that you are confident you have to make internal peace with yourself and I mean I look around on the street like all the fans that come up to me and they're like oh, can we get a photograph with you? You're incredible. I love your videos. I look at them like, you're incredible as well. Look at you. Like, what, what are you doing? You know, you've got a camera, you're snapping photos of buildings. Show me. That looks incredible. Um, nice. I think everyone has their own story and their own great things about them. And people struggle to see it in themselves, but they can see it in others. Mm. And I, I can't, like, there's no person on this planet who I would look at and couldn't see good in them and couldn't see something great. Mm. If you were that young kid again, that that was lacking in confidence at 14 years old, and say I couldn't give, say you couldn't do YouTube, say it didn't exist, what what else might you have done? Knowing what you know now about how your confidence has been built, what else could you have done to reach the same outcome? Ooh, I'm really trying to get to like the, what it, what is it that made you come to peace with yourself? Because um, it sounds like it was a lot of people being nice <laughs> after some weren't so nice when you were younger. Hmm. 
I think I'm quite a, I'm quite a proactive person. So if there's something about me that I don't like, I will try and fix it. Um, so a lot of people, not many people know this actually. So when I was younger, I used to have like a crooked nose and it bothered me a lot. I used to like only sit at certain angles from people and, you know, I'd hide myself in the corners of rooms so people couldn't see the other side. And, uh, eventually I was just like, this is a solvable problem. Why am I worrying about this? So I just got, I got surgery done and fixed it. And I think there's, there's some things about you that you can't fix. And I think you just have to be very mechanical about them and be like, this is me. I have good things and I have bad things, but the bad things I can't change. I'm going to lean on the things that are good about me, fix the things I can fix. And the rest is life. So on that point of having a good or bad nose, and this is me just going with the wind now because I find this super intriguing. Um, something I've thought a lot about. Um, who 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 was to say that your nose was bad? People would laugh at me. So I guess others. <laughs> it's interesting. Society says, you know, this is not good about you. Is there a risk in then changing to please them, do you think? Because I feel like that might be a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. It... <sighs> Hmm. It is a slippery slope, but you just need to know your limits. You just need to kind of like set the boundaries. Maybe that's easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. I, cause I, I really wonder, I wonder that a lot about cosmetic surgery these days, just generally and about the, um, I'm always, I'm always like, if someone gets one thing done, then there's always a, a, a there's, there's now a new most, like there's now a new worst thing about me. And why don't you then go and get that thing changed? Then that thing changed. And I, I wonder if it's a slippery slope. I have no data, data to back this up. Mm. But just anecdotally from seeing some of my my friends who have got one thing done, they typically then will get another done. And then- I've seen it too. I've yeah. seen it too. You're right. Um, but But there's also an element of like, if something bothers you to the extent where you're having to have this whole other layer in your mindset of like, mm oh, I, I can have a conversation with this person, but I'm going to do it from here. Mm. Um, and you can fix it fairly easily, mm. then you, sh- you should do it. Like if the next thing then becomes, oh, well, I'd quite like my chin to be longer. You're not really solving a fundamental problem. Mm. You're just, you're just, you know, having fun. Mm. That's personally where I would draw the line. Because obviously I don't think I have the perfect face or the perfect- you good looking guy. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Great Asian hair. Great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Us blacks don't have it the same way necessarily. So people, people like the beard. Yeah. People, yeah. Just no effort on my part. It just happened. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah it's strong. Thank you. Very strong. <laughs> um, I was going to so one of the reasons I was asking that question about confidence and how you build it, build it is because I reflect sometimes on a lot of the stuff that I say. And I think I put out there, especially in my book and my podcast that I like did this internal work and suddenly I found my confidence and the insecurities faded away. But I can't get away from this idea that I did also make myself mega rich and successful and get millions of followers. And that might have played a role in yeah. me being able to like shrug off the insecurities easily. So yeah. I'm wondering if like, and what awful advice it would be to give to a 16 year old kid to have to say to him, oh, you, you, you're lacking in confidence. Well, just go and build a multi-million pound business and get 10 million subscribers on YouTube and then you'll be fine. So yes. I, I, that's what I'm trying to unpack. Is it is it the achievement and the validation from the achievement that helps the insecurities fall away? Or is it some other type of internal work? I think, I think actually gratitude plays a big role in it. Um, I've spent a lot of time recently 
trying to wake up each morning and just remind myself. I feel like we are we are hardwired to focus on the bad things because, I mean, what prehistorically those used to be the more urgent matters. Mm. And I think gratitude fixes a lot of these insecurities because it's like, okay, yeah, I don't have best, the best skin. I've got acne everywhere, but hey, I can breathe. That's mm. incredible. Mm. Um, so that is something I've been doing a lot of. And I think a lot of the personal growth I've seen has come since then. What does that look like practically in terms of practicing gratitude? So one thing I do is when I wake up, I I told myself I was going to write down a few things, but I end up just thinking them. But that's enough. So I, I think of three things that I'm just grateful for in that moment. And oftentimes you end up saying the same things again and again, but that's actually, that's okay. Mm. It's fine. Like you don't need constantly changing um, mechanisms to keep you happy. Mm. I found that recently with some of my friends that have been not so well. I've just had this tremendous gratitude for my health. Watching one of my friends that's younger than me be have a really serious illness. Mm. Uh, it, and, it's, and it's crazy. They, they, they say this in about like hospital wards. If you walk through a hospital ward, you'll suddenly feel this tremendous sense of gratitude for your health. You know, and yeah. um, how do you practice that on a daily basis without having to have someone fall ill or go to the hospital, I think is diff- increasingly difficult, especially in a world where everybody's like status signaling every time you open your phone, mm. you know. How do you, do, how do you go about doing it then? It's really interesting. I, I make a conscious effort. That's the first thing, but I don't remember to do it every day. And then um, music does it for me sometimes, which is really strange. Um, and I, I'm very fortunate that I think naturally I have these like waves of gratitude that come over me. I'm very aware that I am current. And I said this in my, my live show, the Diver CEO live. I said, the vast majority of this audience, you're currently living a dream that you once had, but you're not appreciating it because your current self is telling future you that you'll be happy when you get three times more than you have now. That's typically up and down the income and wealth spectrum. What people say they need to become a 10 out of 10 happiness Mm. is three X what they have right now. And it's that, and it's that idea of like, you'll never therefore be happy because you're always, so for me, that really centers you and says, fuck me, like 18 year old Steve, this is what he, and I want to say, get goosebumps again. Like, this is what I dream for. Yeah. Like, I wanted to be financially free so that I didn't have to steal Chicago Town pizzas and nick chicken bones from takeaways. And look at me. Mm. I'm 28 years old and I'm free. You know, like, yeah. so I, I try and sometimes that that plays out in my head naturally. Um, you get this a lot on YouTube, like because of how numerical the platform is. Like I, I distinctly remember moments where I'd look at my sort of like statistics and be like, oh, imagine 100,000 subscribers, imagine 500,000 subscribers. I would dream of those numbers. And uh, you almost don't quite realize as you toddle past those numbers in reality, because you're already ready for the next thing. You're so focused on like uh, making it even bigger, even better, getting that phone even earlier before launch and, and all these things. You, you have to stop yourself. Do you stop yourself? Be honest with me. Are you successful in that? I'm really happy. Yeah. I'm a really, really happy guy. Um, so I, I'd like to think, yes, I didn't used to be. Even even three, four years ago, I didn't used to be. Um, when I graduated, I, I had this pent up energy from YouTube because I've been doing it throughout, but I was also juggling it with my studies and I wanted to get a first. And I also didn't want to have a terrible social life. So I was doing all these things and it was kind of this, this crazy whirlwind of just kind of like activity to activity, jumping between filming to lectures, to homework, to nights out. And so when I actually graduated, I was like, right, I'm going to give everything to YouTube. So I made one video every single day 
for at least six months. And it, it drove me to the point where I, one time I just broke down crying on camera. Um, I never published that, but I have a, I have a photo, which I sometimes look back on to remind me of like what, what it took. Um, and so that, that reminds me. Why were you crying? It, it was, uh, a lot of things had sort of come to the fore. It was, it was exhaustion in the moment because it was, it was really hot. And I was just kind of like, my hands hurt and my, my voice hurt. My throat was cracking, but it was also this kind of long-term buildup that led to it. Um, it was, it was actually a bit of a pivot point in my career because I sat down like, this isn't actually what I wanted. Um, it, it was a realization that I've actually, you know, my channel's growing, all these metrics are looking up, but, <laughs> but this isn't, mm. you know, uh, my brain. Um, and it made, it immediately made me change mindset from hard work to smart work. It was, I suddenly started thinking like, do I, which tasks do I need to be there for? And how do I make sure I'm only doing those tasks? And also it made me take a step back from, I'm not doing a video every day. I've got to look at the data, look at these retention graphs, find out how to maximize the click-through rates, all these kinds of things. It allowed me to take a step back, breathe and focus on how to utilize my brain to the best of its ability. In terms of mental health, you tapped your head then when you said you'd optimized for, I guess, YouTube performance, but you hadn't optimized for your mental well-being. At your lowest, what was, what was the, what was, what state was your mind in? Your, your well-being? I've never been depressed, I would say. I think I've, I'm quite resilient as well as being quite lucky. Um, but I got to a stage where emotionally, physically, just exhaustion, I think is how I would put it. Very, very tired. To the point where I didn't have time for friends, for family. Like by the time I'd finished, they were asleep. Um... I'd, I'd kind of screwed myself into a little hole and that hole was my bedroom mm. where I'd film. So I think that's what people call burnout. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. But I wouldn't let myself stop. Why? And because I told myself that like, this was my dream and that one video a day was the way to achieve that dream. And so like, there was just something inside of me, which is like, you can't stop now. Like you're there. This is, this is the runway. Just run. What did you tell yourself your dream was? I would look at other YouTubers when I was a kid and just like, you know, they had like a million subscribers, for example, and they were getting all this tech through the door and their entire job was to just test it and learn about it. And I remember just being like, that, that's the best thing in the world. Like I'm fascinated by technology. I would love to be able to just see all this stuff. Because when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't get to play with the latest stuff. You know, I, was, I wasn't the kid who had the latest Game Boy or anything like that. Um, so, so I guess that really appealed to me. So your idea of happiness when you were younger was getting sent amazing technology and being able to just like do what you love, talk about it. So you, you, I guess you set yourself this plan of just being, making a video every single day in the, I guess the thought that that would lead to your, your dream. And you, I guess you, you, you realized at some point that your strategy was unsustainable. Yeah. And way of putting it. Yeah, it just felt like a really, like you still wanted the same goal, but your strategy in terms of getting there was just unsustainable. Mm. Oh my God. It just, I, I relate to that so much in so many different ways. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you have to set up your goals as marathons, not sprints. If you, you do want yeah. to achieve them, right? Yeah. I've never heard it described like that, but that, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
you've got your whole life to do these things. <laughs> like mm. it doesn't need to be today. And potentially the intensity of trying to do it today is actually the biggest risk to it ever happening. Yeah. Because I mean, if you if your mental well-being had been adversely effective, more adversely effective than it was, you might not have ever come back to YouTube because of... Yeah. I mean, it could have been enjoyable. Like you, it sounds like at that point when you were doing that, like just crazy sacrifice everything, was it enjoy, was it enjoy, was it fulfillment or was it something else? I was getting some sort of sick thrill out of yeah. seeing the numbers go up. <laughs> sick thrills. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, when it comes at the cost of yourself, I think you've been there as well. Yeah. You're not enjoying it really. And it's that thought in your mind that I can't do this forever. Yeah. But it took until a kind of breaking point for me to realize. Yeah. And it seems to you for a lot of people. It seems that a lot of people hit some burnout, some explosive moment. I mean, Tom Blomfield sat here from on the podcast, CEO of, uh, and founder of Monzo, and talks about the same thing, just waking up in the morning with like a sense of dread mm. and like his sleep actually being the peaceful escape. And that three seconds when he woke up and he didn't realise he was the CEO of Monzo just being amazing. Oh, and that crushing weight of like, but it seems to be the case with a lot of people that they don't, act, they get so caught up in this, this, hamster wheel chase for their dream that they don't realize it's unsustainable and the cost it's having on other things that are fundamentally conducive to living a happy life yeah people people yeah i I think we are we are complex beings but we are also quite simple in what we need and that's social interaction and people who are close and who actually want us to succeed and we don't need many of them we definitely don't need 10 million. <laughs> tell me what you thought you needed before and, and then after that moment. So before, so tell me what you thought you needed in life before you had that sort of breakdown moment and then what you've come to realise in subsequent years that you actually need in life. Hmm. I think before it was very much a numbers thing. I think I was a, I was a kid who thought that the answer was just to just keep growing for the sake of growing. But But afterwards, it's very much been about I, I still want to grow. I still want to be the the best tech influencer on the planet. I want to be synonymous with the word tech. But it will be mindful growth. It, like one of the factors in that growth will be not just monetary, but it will be, does it work with this? Does it Does it still make me equally or more happy? No decision will go forward if it doesn't. If that makes sense. Mm. So the goal hasn't changed, but the, the approach has. Mm. It's fascinating. I think a lot of people can relate to that in their lives um, in a lot of ways because they're potentially sacrificing a little bit too much and trying to win a sprint. But these big goals, like the goals that you have, the ambitions you have, they are, as we've said, like marathons. They are. They are. Um, I'm very aware that like, if you want to be the best in the world at something, you've got to give something. You can't spend, you know, all your time with your friends just having beers yeah. You you have to let it go sometimes. And so I'm very, I'm very careful with how I spend my time, but I make sure that there is quality time with the people that I do care about. So, and so let's talk about that point then, hard work. A lot of people say that hard work is, um, it's toxic, mm. et cetera. What do you say to that? Oh, the whole, uh, <laughs> wake up at 4am, that, that kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's the way forward. If anything, actually, I think sleep is a, a really practical, productive thing to be doing. Um, if anything, I wish I was better at it. I actually struggle a lot with my sleep. 
I'm really trying to improve. I've actually got your um, episode with the sleep expert on my watch later list. Oh God, um, <laughs> no yeah. pressure. Yeah. Um, no, she, she says some really important things. I'm going to watch yeah. it on the way home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not of that opinion. I think there is a time and place for really hard work, but it has to be for a cause that, it has to be for the greater goal. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think you talked about this with uh, on the episode with Ali. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what was the conclusion you came to? Well, I, I can't actually remember exactly um, what we came to, but my general thinking on hard work is that, um, and, and I guess burnout is when you're doing something that you, you can, where you consider the reward of doing it meaningful and worthwhile, mm. then hard work really is important. And I actually listened to Elon Musk this weekend talk about this. He said the exact same thing. He said, when you believe that you're doing the correct thing and it's a noble or like meaningful goal, then hard work is really, really important. And it's also will help you avoid burnout. But when you're doing hard work for a task that you don't think is meaningful, like working in a factory mm. for 14 hour days and it's, and it's not stimulating your mind and it's just hard work for minimum wage. Yeah. Burnout is inevitable and it's just around the corner. And that for me is like, oh God, that's my idea of a nightmare. Hard yeah. work, hard, meaningless work, it, for me is the, is the definition of like, lose your fucking marbles, insanity. I think I'm very lucky in that sense, in that like, I found my calling. Yeah. And I think we're in a world where a lot of people just don't. Uh, I'm not saying that there's like one true goal for each person, like no one's going to have their dream job. But I think a lot of people, they find out quite late what they really enjoy. And I think we're in a system where people have to decide very quickly um, and with not a full information set what career path they want to go down. What advice would you give to people that are, I mean, this is just, again, talking about things that people ask me all the time, how to find my passion or whatever is. So I would say, try as many things as you can while you're young. Um, I had a, a really close friend who's 18 and she decided she wanted to do pharmacy, but then did two weeks of that course and was like, actually, I don't really want to do that anymore. Um, and then was like, oh, maybe I should do medicine. So she dropped out of pharmacy, thinking about doing medicine. And then she might drop out of that, decide she wants to do business studies. It's like, if you just spend two weeks in as many different careers as possible, that that's when you know. Mm. Um, there's kids. Kids are lazy. A lot. A lot of kids are lazy, and I think that um, there's this kind of short short sightedness that you have to just kind of find a way to overcome, just for your long term future's sake. Like that time is so pivotal when you're deciding. You're sat at that crossroads and you're looking down all these different paths given the systems we have in place, you have to spend that time well finding out which, like what these paths actually look like. Mm. And the system, as you say, is set up at 16 years old. They give you like brochures and they're like, pick, yeah, <laughs> pick which subjects you're going to do. And then you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Then you're locked into those subjects. Then you go, which university and which course? And you have no idea. The medical and the law courses are particularly bad because they're so specialized. Um, you know, if you do a medical degree you're not really qualified to do a lot of different things. Like you're probably going to be a doctor mm. and, and you can very quickly find yourself in a position where you feel trapped. Uh, I have another friend who did medicine and then did the whole thing, but then was like, actually, no, I want to be a journalist. And so that whole five years, they didn't, they didn't need to do it. 
How did you find your calling then? So what is it? And I don't mean, because I know your story, we all do. But what is it about you that when your calling showed up, you had the whatever, I don't want to give, I don't want to put answers in your mouth Mm. to say, that's it. I'm going to go in that direction. Because a lot of people wouldn't see playing around with mobile phones as a uh, possibility. I would say uh, light in the dark. Um, It was very obvious to me because of what the alternatives were. Like I was kind of, I think a lot of people follow the path and the path basically dictates that the subjects you are strong in, you study a degree that is similar to those subjects. And then those degrees usually have a next stepping stone and a next stepping stone. And you'll just kind of, you'll shoot down unless you veer off. You you have to actively veer off that path. And so I was very much going down the kind of, I'm strong at maths, therefore I'm going to do an economics degree. I'm doing, I'm doing an economics degree. So I'm going to be a consultant. I was going down that path. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I was just lucky that I was also doing this other thing, which excited me so much. And so comparing the two, when it became clear to me that actually YouTube could be a career as well, um, it was just an obvious choice. Do you ever reflect on what might have happened if you didn't have the conviction to go for? I I think I would have become a consultant, which is terrifying. Mm. I I wish I could say I wasn't, but you know, that's the work experience I did. That was the job I was offered. So given there was no outside option, I, I probably would have taken it. And a lot of people have done that in their lives. They've followed those sort of sequential steps yeah. and ended up somewhere. And they're listening to this right now and thinking, fuck. <laughs> it's tricky because you don't want to just quit your job one day for a you know, potential startup you might have with a 10% chance of succeeding. You can't, you can't do that, right? Like, well, what advice do you give to people in that situation? Well, this isn't about me. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I really do. I really do. I always say what you said at the start, which is about just increasing the amount of experiments you make as, as uh, like cost, um, cost effective experiments you're making as young as you possibly can, which is exactly what you've described, which means go to another country, spend two weeks and quit really fucking quickly. Yes. And just like rapid quit. The minute you're like, I hate this, quit, move on, try in. And I think people that are exposed to, as you say, the most data, the most information Mm. are able to make more informed decisions about what they enjoy. And you can take that part of that job where you got to do this thing and mix it with this part of this job where you got to do that thing and slowly weave your way towards the thing that gives you the most fulfillment. Yeah. But as we say, I know, because I know the people that listen to this podcast, there's so many people right now in jobs where they've kind of like ended up there working in KPMG or PwC in the city wearing a suit and tie. And they know that job isn't for them. They know mm. it's not for them. But they they, they just maybe, you know, they're... But there is also an element, I think, of like, we live in a society where social media is prevalent and people log onto Instagram every day and see other people who are leading better lives than them. Apparently. Or apparently, yeah. yeah. And I think there is an element of gratefulness with the job you do have because yeah. not everyone is going to find their dream job. And maybe the job you're doing is your dream job because it facilitates the life that you currently lead. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And that's like this, the practical approach. I'm not practical. And like people will get mad at this, but like look at, the, look at my decision-making I stopped going to school. I then dropped out of university after one lecture, started a company, quit it out the the blue, ran another company for seven years, quit out the blue. 
I make decisions based on how I'm feeling. Mm. And practicality has always been secondary in terms of, well, what am I going to do about the feeding? My, like dropping out of university in Manchester, never got a student loan. I'm shoplifting these Chicago town pizzas. And I call my mum and say, mum, I'm dropping out. She goes, I'll never speak to you again. I didn't care because I, I was just in this relentless pursuit of me, of what made me feel good every day. Mm. Um, so I understand the practicality argument, but I, I find it dangerous because it hints of like, just tolerate it, you know? And I, yeah, but, but let's say like, obviously I'm still fairly young, but mm. I can imagine that if I was 50 years old with a family to support and yeah. a career that I'm not, you know, I'm on the fence of, I'm like, well, you know, it's fine. It's good. You're right. You what are can right. you do? Like, you've just you got to be right. happy with it. You know? I, I do say to people, you've got to be practical in those moments, but I don't think you've got to be happy with it. If you're not. You shouldn't quit. You can look for outside options, yeah. but I think it's not one of those things to be impulsive about. Mm. I agree. Yeah. What we're describing here is there's this middle ground yeah. where you have to be practical because your kids need to eat. But, and so you want to be more strategic in how you, mm. you know, you make your move. However, I don't, I really don't want anyone at any age to find themselves in a place of like misery and think, well, got to be grateful and I've got to feed these kids, haven't I? I just, I just <laughs> want better for people. And I know it's hard. Like I know it's hard or else everybody would just be living their dream. Mm. But I, I also know that it is possible for all of us, regardless of age or position we find ourselves in or how stagnant we've been for how many decades to make the decision today that this is the start of like the rest of our lives and we're going to just give it a fucking go. Mm. I know that's true. The only thing that stands in the way of that is people don't believe it's true. They look at you and you seem so far away, 10 million subscribers. You must be Superman, super genius that born with it. Parents must be rich. You must have genius. Just that's not me. I'm a muggle. And I hate that because I'm, you know, and yeah, yeah. Everyone starts from zero. Yeah. Every YouTube channel had zero subscribers at one point mm. and, you know, was, was cheering when they got the first one and it was probably their mum. Mm. you know. The, um, most, the most inspiring thing I think I could show the audience is probably you when you were 14. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because they'd be like, that guy? Same with me. They'd be like, that fucking guy? <laughs> I, I had the, the camera presence of a, of a vegetable. <laughs> it's, it's not good. <laughs> That's crazy. On this point of friends then, and relationships. How, how are you doing? And, and what are your tips? You're super ambitious. You're scaling this big business um, on YouTube. What are your strategies to maintain meaningful relationships amongst all this chaos? Because I struggle. Yeah. I, I try and make sure it's quality time. So I think I spend less time texting and more time seeing people. Like if I spend two hours texting one of my friends that is much less of a quality connection than two hours of seeing that person, of being able to have a fluid conversation and being able to see them and see their facial expressions and their gesticulations and all that. So I pretty much plan my time such that the minute I finish work, I am doing something in person with the people I care about, Mm. whether that's a board game with my family or a night out with my friends. There's very little downtime, but in a good way. Do you have to be somewhat of a contradiction in who you are to have quality relationships? Um, Do you have to be a different guy? Because what I'm saying is professionally, everything is about return on time. If I spend one hour, what am I getting back? Mm. Do you have to be a different guy to get the most out of your social life in terms of that that sort of like time efficiency? I'm the boss, da-da-da-da. 
yeah, it sounds very transactional to look at relationships like that. Um, I think every person actually does view them in the same way. They just don't put the labels on it. I think really we're all doing the same things as humans where, you know, we've got a a set of 10 decisions in our heads, things we could do, and we pick the one that's best for us. But I think I just attach a framework to it that allows me to think about it easier. Um, So I think I'd be doing the same thing, even if I didn't think about it in that way. Mm. I'm just, the way I think about it allows me to plan it better. Mm. And you value those things. You now value those. Oh, when I, when I finish a day of work and I know I'm about to go see my friends, like my heart starts pumping. I get so excited. Mm. I just like, I get off the station at St. Pancras sometimes. And I just, I feel like a, like a free bird. Mm. And like, I know there's going to be a little adventure that weekend. And it's, I think those moments make your life worth living. Do you have a lot of friends? Not many, but, but they're good ones. Roughly how many? I have, I'd say... Like good friends, like brothers, like, you know what I mean? Six. Or sisters. Six, six friends. Yeah. And that's pretty much my entire circle. I think the only friends I have are good friends. Hmm. The, the rest of them, I've almost decided that realistically, I'm not going to be able to make this friendship work. Hmm. And it, it's sad. Like, sometimes it's even just geographical. Some of my friends after university, they, they move to France or Indonesia or Hong Kong. And just the fact that they're in another country has meant that realistically... Uh, my friendship with that person is just going to be a series of messages. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? And even though I like those people, it just doesn't work. That's not like a meaningful relationship, no. is it? You must have had the same thing as oh, well. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's really frustrating because great guys, but you know. Do you know what? I actually struggle at the moment because my girlfriend lives in Indonesia. And so right now um, the border to get into Indonesia is closed. Yeah. So you can't get in anyway. And I can feel that my relationship with her is like small talk. You know, it's like, oh, hey, how are you? I'm doing this. What are you doing today? I'm doing a podcast again and running my business. What are you doing? Yeah, running my business. It's like, do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You, and you can feel that the the importance of like physical one-on-one time, um, which has been smashed because of the pandemic, but also because she lives literally 24 hours away. Hmm. So I've got to like really reassess my life. I'm assuming you've tried like video calls yeah. and like video messages and even then it's like different time zones and yeah. That, that's the it's worst. The same, different times. Oh my God. It's really difficult. But you, you come back to this point, like if it's worth it, you're going to go to extraordinary lengths to figure it out, figure out how to solve the problem. Mm. And for me, that, that means that I'm going to have to go there a lot. I'm going to have to fly to Indonesia a lot. I'm just going to have to fly here a lot. So you see that being like a permanent long-term yep. relationship? Yeah. Crikey. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. I know, right? She's not Indonesian. She's from France, from French and Portuguese. She's but... just making your life difficult. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. Um, but if it's worth it, you got to put in the work. And do you yeah, know, I reflect yeah. on all of my friends' relationships. And this is the really the thing that really makes me want to put in the work to make it work is all of my friends, even the ones that have had the most successful relationships, have been through hell and chaos at some point they've had to overcome really really remarkable challenges mm. and it's overcoming those challenges that have made them stronger so I see it as that like my friend that I consider to have the best relationship out of all my friends they have individually both been through personal chaos and managed mm. to come come out the other end so I see this as a as one of those things like a test like the borders closed you can't get into the country you know, it's like that, uh, what's that Rocky Balboa quote? It's not how hard you get hit, it's how hard you get hit and can keep going forward. I think it? that's relationships. And yeah. the thing that keeps you going forward is like, is it worth it? 
Is it worth it? Yeah. At some point, the answer to that question might be no. Same with Burke. So, so your chance, uh, your stance on this has changed, hasn't it, with relationships? Yes. Quite recently. Which part? Which part of my stance? So I remember reading that uh, you had a relationship that you had to kind of like end because you were so focused on your work. Oh, I think that Daily Mail wrote that. Um, but yeah. I mean, that is true. That is true with all of my previous relationships, pretty much. Mm. Yeah. Um, that was just a, a young, naive kid. That was like a super naive version of me that was miscalculate, miscalculated the priorities of life. And what changed? Was it just finding the right person or was it an internal thing? It was definitely both, but I'd actually say it was more the internal thing. It was the, this is why I asked you the question earlier on about you, what you valued before and after your breakdown. Because before, for me, before I had my sort of turning point, I thought, as you said, the most important thing in the world was just getting rich, buying a Lamborghini and a mansion, and then having loads of like infrequent casual partners. I thought that would be it. That would make me exponentially happier. Yeah. Um, what I came to, and I didn't think relationships mattered, friendships or romantic. What I came to learn through a variety of different stimuli one of them being a TED talk I saw where they did a hundred year study of men and they looked at men that had relationships and men that didn't have relationships. The ones that had relationships lived like 10 years longer, were healthier, happier. Mm. Imagine that, lived 10 years longer. Crazy. Made them physically healthier, um, were happier, everything. Everything that mattered um, was given to those that had meaningful relationships. Then I read Lost Connections by Johanna Hari. And it shows that a lot of the reason why we're getting more and more depressed and socially anxious and all of these things is because we're not in our tribes. We don't have meaningful connections. I thought, fuck. And then I looked at what I'd been feeling myself. And I'd always, I'd always been too scared to say I was lonely. Mm. I'd always been too scared to say that. I'd, I've always been too scared to say that I wasn't feeling good either. But on reflection, no, I was lonely. I was really, really lonely. You can be lonely even if you're surrounded by people. Yeah, 100%. I yeah. think actually... There's a reason why a lot of people say that university is the best time of their lives. Mm. And I think it's because they're surrounded by friends. And the relationship people have with their friends is often healthier than the relationship people have with their families because the level of expectation is removed. Mm. Like I think with families, people find that they fall into certain roles where like they do the dishes and they clean the floors. Whereas at university with your friends, if you clean the floors, you're, he you're a hero. Mm. And I think that kind of, that attitude means that people want to hang out with their friends more and they enjoy that process, even though they're fundamentally doing the same things. They're being appreciated more. 100%. And I think I try and apply that in my relationships. It's like when my friends come to see me, just the fact that they've come to see me, I'm like, oh, guys, come on. Amazing, yeah. It's amazing. There's also no hierarchy in friendship groups in terms of like your family, you have a hierarchy. You have the older brother and the older sister, then you have the mum. And, and then you also get to typically select your friends, which you don't get to do with your family. So you can wind up with a pretty nuts family That's true. and have to tolerate it because you are related. And I think the, the friendship, especially as you get out of school, because school kind of forces you together. But if you get out of school, you start to discover who you are, what music you're into, what interests you have. Mm. You then build a tribe around you that have shared values. And that seems to be the best, yeah. the best tribe. No, not to underestimate family though. Like I think when you have good family connections, no one wants you to succeed more than more, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think very few people have your best interests at heart apart from them. 100%. What about romantic relationships? How have you found forming romantic relationships as a 
on-screen mega YouTuber. Ambitious it's guy, entrepreneur. nuanced, is what I would say. Like, when you, when you have this whole YouTube thing, clearly, like, people are into it. Right. People, it's a cool job, if nothing else. It's just cool. So you're saying women are into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you'll know when you've found someone who looks through it, looks past it. Um, the only challenge then becomes time because YouTube is not just incredibly time consuming, but it's also unpredictable. And so in relationships where people want stability, trying to offer that stability is, is not easy. Um, you know, let's say someone wants me to come to a wedding in two weeks time. Aaron, can you definitely make it? Can you book that date in? I can't, I can't really, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not working a nine to five. I can't book days off. Sometimes an opportunity presents itself and it's such a great opportunity that I don't want to turn it down. Um, it, like, like this chat, like, you know, I, I really wanted to come see you as soon as I got the email. But had I said to someone else, a friend or a girlfriend or whatever, that I was going to be doing something with them this day, I'd have had to, I'd have had to do that. And that, that horrifies me. Because, you know, we're in a place where the sky's in the limit, all these metrics are looking up and so many people and opportunities are presenting themselves. I want, I want, I want to do them all. Mm. So how do you balance it? How do you balance it? Well, quality time, in-person time. And I think, so, so you almost have to kind of like assign things in your relationships an importance level and if something is really important to your partner then you just be there no matter what if things are somewhat negotiable then you know try and make it but don't commit and and how important is it to find the right person i'm guessing you've potentially tried a few different types like i have i've tried a few different types of people maybe then maybe three three or four maybe five um, <laughs> no no like i mean like relationships over the last over the last, uh, let's say, 10 years, mm. different different characters that either saw my work as a threat or saw it as a really cool thing and were supportive, were maybe way too supportive, were maybe way too intimidated by work. How, how important has it been to find the right person? So important. So important. I mean, you know, your partner is the person you're spending, you know, you want to spend the rest of your life with. They're going to become you effectively. You know, you've have you heard that thing where you kind of, you become the five closest people around you? Yeah, yeah your partner is going to be your biggest influence for the rest of your life. And so them being on the same page and them being an inspiration to you as well as you to them, I think is, is the only thing you need. Do you think you need a partner that is ambitious? And I always, I always find this really fascinating that I've had so many conversations with very ambitious entrepreneurs um, and they tend to go one of two ways. They, t- they typically tend to believe that they also need someone who is sidetracked with their own dreams and goals. Mm. But I, I question that sometimes. And I think... Okay, so, so start with yours, your oh take, gosh, and then I'll give you mine. This is about you. <laughs> well, so, okay. So when I was a little bit more stupid, like 18, I used to think that I want my partner to be a, like a philanthropist, has, has their own thing, and to just be you know, taking over the world themselves. However, in reality, I've come to learn that I might be lying to myself because if that were to be the case, then we'd probably never see each other. Right. Um, Because the likelihood is they'd be in another country doing massive things and it would just be texting. 
And so I've, I've come to learn, especially when I was in the height of my career at social chain and I was flying like 50 days a year, 50 weeks a year, sorry. Um, I couldn't have possibly had a meaningful relationship with someone that was doing the same. So it's made me question myself a little bit and start to reflect on the fact that, especially when, you know, other factors come into play, maybe I need someone that is going to be a little bit more uh, supportive of my, of my, and I don't, this sounds so old, who gives a fuck? I think, I think where I am at with it is a little different. I think fundamentally the person you end up with has to see eye to eye with you. They have to be on your wavelength. And I think for people like us who are just so incredibly ambitious, we want to do huge things with our lives. It's not going to work out with someone who isn't like that because eventually you'll lose respect for them. So I think all these things about convenience of the relationship, they kind of all fall to the wayside if that person is right, if they, if they see you like that. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. I've been unable to form a romantic relationship with someone that doesn't have passion for something. And I'm not saying take over the world. I mean, like be into knitting, like love, you know, anything, <laughs> yeah, just like yeah. love, like dog breeding. I don't you know, like you know, breeding, grooming, just, just pas- be passionate about something. And I think mm. what I'm looking for there is to come home and talk about you and your life too, and your hobbies, not just to, it's a center yeah. on me because then I don't get to escape. I don't get to relax and wind down, you know? Yeah. Um, no, you're right. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they're passionate about, but they have to be passionate. Yeah. But what if they are? What if they're, what if they're flying 50 weeks a year? How do you, how does that work? I think in the same way that like, you know, you have to compromise for the other person. They will also compromise for you. Yeah. And I think it's okay if you make a million less a year or whatever it is, depending on what scale you're working on, if it means you can have this meaningful relationship. Because as we've established, like as humans, we need that. It's a core need. And it's the easiest one to neglect because the feeling isn't as urgent as hunger or thirst, but it is there. So true. So true. I definitely have realized that if I'm going to have a romantic relationship and it's going to work, I'm, I'm going to have to leave millions off the table. Just like in l- l- missing meetings and, yeah. not, and having to compromise. And that's a really... That's a really hard to, do. hard to do because you then try and quantify the value the relationship has as a return. And you say, well, if I'm probably going to lose, I reckon I'd lose like 5 million a year by having a romantic relationship. Genuinely, maybe <laughs> even more, like ge- genuinely, pro- probably more. Yeah. And you think, well, oh, fucking hell, they've got to be what you know what I mean? but, yeah. th- but then you reflect and go, well, I'm, I don't need more money, do I? Yeah. But there is a gain to be made in terms of like romantic connection. Yeah. But beyond a certain point, what, what is money? It just, it's a bit of convenience, right? That's all yeah. it is. And 
potentially if you get too much, a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. Like some people, I, I know they spend, they spend a long time looking for things to spend their money on. Oh God, that's the worst. Yeah. That is a sickness. Yeah. Um, so I got this uh, phone through the mail not that long ago and it was a $170,000 iPhone. But you know oh. what it was? It was, uh, sorry, not an iPhone. It was a Samsung phone, but it was a phone with a gold brick attached to the back. And I was thinking to myself, what kind of person actually buys this? Where would you have to be in your life to, to purchase this particular phone? Miserable bastard. You've got to be miserable. Yeah. Right? You've like, got to be miserable. I can't imagine a world where someone that's buying a phone that has a gold brick strapped to it is living a fulfilled life. Exactly. Everything I must know must be wrong if they, they can buy a, a gold bricks. Oh, do you want to know the funny part? So because of the gold brick on the back, the cameras don't work. Oh, fuck. Can't even take a photo of your dog. Can't even take a photo. <laughs> The, the way I reasoned it was that if you've got that much money, you've probably got someone to take photos of you. But. True, yeah. Or you've got no friends because yeah. you're that miserable. What, what Money then, let's talk about money. What what role does it play in your life? So when I was growing up, um, like I said, I wasn't underprivileged. So I had I had all, everything basic covered, but there was definitely things I wanted. Mm. You know, I wanted the latest toys. I wanted the latest trading cards, whatever it was. Um. So when I first started getting income from YouTube, I was very happy with it. You know, I would buy things off Amazon and like make myself short-term happy. Just fill fill those little gaps that I had in my childhood, I guess. Would you go looking for things to buy? Sometimes. Yeah. I think I would. Same. Um, it, it's that first initial feeling of freedom and like, it, it almost doesn't feel real when you can order things off, off your own card and like they come to you and it's like, I've earned this. This is my treat. Um, but after a period of time, I realized that like the things that I actually want don't cost very much. And so I actually, I've purposefully not bought myself a nice car because I actually, I'm very aware that as humans, we adjust. Slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. And I know that even if let's say 20 years in the future, I own a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, there's no point rushing to get there because I know from that point, all I'm going to be thinking is what's next. And so you might as well get a Polo first and then maybe get a, an A-class Mercedes and then maybe get a, a nice Nissan. I, I don't know, work your way up. Even, even if you could get a nice car now, like what, what's the rush? Just enjoy the journey. It's like, I see it like a video game. Like, do you play many games? Yeah. So I always find myself when I play games, I am rushing to finish them. And I want to I get to that last boss. I want to beat it for the final reward. But then as soon as I do that, I just... I lose all interest in the game. And it, it, there's so many parallels between that and real life. You know, what do you do when you have so much money that you don't know what to do with it? You just, you find things to do with it. And that in itself is, is a, you know, it's just another thing to do. It makes me feel sick sometimes that I still have these moments where I will like glance at a mansion on like right move. Mm. And then I genuinely have this sick feeling in my stomach because I know what my life then means. Do you know what I mean? Like genuinely, it would probably make me miserable because I'd have to move out of London, which means I'm further away from friends and people can't come to me. And then I'm in this eight bedroom house yeah. that no one can come to anyway. And I feel that sickness. Mm. It's, it, it, like, and I, I feel the same way when I look at like the Lamborghinis and the Rolls Royces, which I always come back to, I'm going to buy one. It's like the insecure kid shows up and then I get that like 
belly sickness where Tightness. I go, yeah, it's yeah. like, well, Steve, if you do that, you know what this means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what treadmill you're like. <laughs> there, there is some part of you that's pulling you and you've got to be yeah. like, stop. Yes, exactly. And it's yeah. that insecure kid that's being still being influenced by society mm. and social media to, to try and run at those empty things. Yeah. It's actually something that's been on my mind recently. Like society is that, is that thing. And through adverts and social media targeting, like it's found its way into our lives in a way that is so close to us all the time. Constant. That you're being pulled in this direction. And it's no one's fault. It's not our fault. Um, but we are becoming very materialistic. Yeah. At the expense of things that actually matter. Yeah. And it, it is at the expense of something else. Yeah. These yeah, apps so. are, are custom built. Every decision made with these applications that we use is built to use us, to, to extract from us. Mm. Um, every chime that goes on is custom built to, to mess with the, the parts of your brain that are made to sort of like, they're made to make you lose control, to make you think, oh my God, there's a notification, I've got to check it. They're built like that. And mm. that's terrifying. So what do you do about that, knowing that? Uh, I used to use a scheduling app. So I used to set my phone up so that all my notifications would come at one point in the day. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but then I stopped doing that when I started missing important emails. So now I just kind of keep my phone on silent and look at it when I look at it. I almost get mild anxiety if I've not checked my WhatsApp. Like I, used I know to, what you mean. I used to really get it when I was at Social Chain because especially when I was living in New York City, um, I would wake up after, I'm guessing that's right, yeah, I'd wake up after the UK. So I would know the minute I woke up, and I'd usually wake up at 4am because my brain would, would wake me up because it was anxious, knowing that the minute I touch my phone and look at all these offices around the world and all these people and all these employees and these directors my phone every morning would be 70, 80 messages. So you'd wake up and then you go like with one eye open, reach for the phone and look and just check there was nothing on fire. Yeah. Like no major crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And doing that for, oh man, it, it takes it out of you. You don't want to get up. You don't want to do your job anymore. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to ever have that again. It's, it's awful. How did you get around that? I didn't, I quit the job eventually, but it was, it was up until I quit. Like I was waking up with that. Mm. That like, con- I was always, as you know, at the worst times when the business was like tough and it was, it would struggle. Like I wouldn't want to open my emails and I wouldn't want to open my WhatsApps. It was just because you knew it was bad news. Mm. Your body's conditioned. It's, it gets a signal. It's like, if you press this button, you get bad news. Why the fuck do you press the button then? Yeah. You start avoiding pressing the button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 um, it's not easy, but social media is designed in that way. It's like it, for, for, probably more so from like the positive reinforcement you get from that dopamine hit of mm. getting comments or likes or whatever. And as a YouTuber, you must feel that more than, more than most. You've got yeah. 10 million. It is on my mind actually that like what other things I do in my life going forward are going to give me the same amount of dopamine. Because mm. if, if you post a video and it's, it starts, you know, hitting trending and it's getting millions of views and so many likes and 10,000 people telling you you're great, what tops that? What, what am I going to do in my life that is actually better than that? <laughs> um, and, and I do sometimes, I've had to kind of pull myself out of this mindset, but there was a point in my life where I would look at situations I was in, let's say on bowling with my family. And I'd be thinking like, is this making me as happy as getting a viral video? It, it's not, it is a slippery slope because it's almost too good. <laughs> it's mm. too good and nothing else can match it. It's kind of what you said, you said earlier about playing the video game and 
waiting until you get to the end. You are, your standard of that dopamine hit or of a thrill is so high now. Yeah, yeah. It must be hard to meet that elsewhere in life. Yeah. So what do you do about that? How do you, how do you, how are you able to enjoy, and you don't have to have the answer. We're all works in progress, you're only 25. But how are you able to enjoy other parts of life with your partner who wants to just go to, I don't know, Go shopping. Go shopping or have a picnic. Um, I think the key is is detoxing every now and again. You've heard of the whole like dopamine detox. Not really. So, so it's the idea of completely depriving yourself from all stimulation for periods of time. So no music, no phone, no internet, nothing. Just very simple pleasures. And so like whenever I get the opportunity to do those, I will take them. And so like I have these periodic moments of complete release where I'm doing nothing stimulating and they're quite difficult to be honest. Like the urge is definitely there to run up and check my notifications, but I refrain just because I know long-term, like I need to stop. And how long are these periods of dopamine detox? It's whenever I, I can afford to do them. I mean, I think in a best case scenario, you do it regularly. But for me, it's more like if I finish a big stint of work and I'm just exhausted, I'll say, okay, Next day and a half, I'm doing, I'm doing very little. I'm going to talk to people and um, drink coffee, you know? And what impact does that have? I think it brings you down to earth again. It, it reminds you of the things that are important and it allows you to enjoy them. You only need a couple of hours and I think you can very quickly start to appreciate things that you'd forgotten to appreciate before because you were caught up on social blade statistics. Is there, we talked a lot about the positive sides of this um, meteoric rise you had on YouTube and how it helped you like be a bit more secure in yourself and understand yourself a bit better. But are there some characteristics or um, I guess side effects of this that are probably reversible now that you... Irreversible. Yeah, like irreversible consequences of this meteoric success on YouTube that are negative in your view. I mean, that that was kind of one of them there, but... Yeah, it, the only thing that comes to mind, I suppose you'd almost have to ask the people around me to get mm. a proper answer, but the only thing that comes to mind is how cagey I am with my time. I think because of how much I plan it and because of how self-aware I am of how important it is, I... I very much find myself in situations where I'm like, okay, this was great. Got to go. Bye. Um, and I, I do really enjoy these break times, but I do also cut them. <laughs> um, and I think for other people who, who aren't as cagey with their time, they'd probably see that as like, a, oh, he's got to go again. Classic Aaron, you know. Mm. Or rudeness or something. Maybe. Yeah. I've been told actually a few times in the past that actually, like I start a conversation, realize I don't have time for it then leave. Um <laughs> I used to do that at university because what would happen is, you know, you go out your room, you're living with your friends, you talk to someone. And before you know it, there's seven people in the corridor chatting. Yeah, and yeah, even yeah. though I was the one who started the conversation, I'd have to go because I'm like, okay, it's 7.30, I've got to start scripting YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some people would be like, well, that was a bit rude, which I can understand. But there was no other way I could have got what I needed to get done, done. You don't regret that though, do you? No, I don't. I don't regret it because I think the people who have ended up as my core friends, they, they understand. I tend to also believe that the people that have reached fulfillment and success in their lives are really, they have like a high boundary set for the use of their time. At the end of the day, as I talk about a lot, um, it's the only resource we all have. Yeah. 
allocating it in a really efficient manner towards things that matter, I think is important. But a lot of people won't. They'll find themselves in that hallway conversation and they won't want to be rude because they're people pleasing. Mm. So they'll end up spending like two hours talking about things they don't care about with people they don't really like. Yeah, 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 yeah. And for me, that's a just a cardinal sin of like happiness. You can't, you've got to be a bit of a, I was going to say the C word then, I shouldn't do that. You've got to be a bit rude sometimes. You've got to be rude sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot about that idea of like becoming uh, the richest man on earth, but then being really old and wanting to spend all your money to buy another day or something. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. And it it's a constant reminder of like, stay in the right lane, focus on the things that matter. You don't have that long. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're lonely now? No, I don't. I, I did a few years ago, but I, I feel really good now. I feel like I... I know what I want and I've got it. And that's that comes from the balance of friends and family and romantic yeah. connections. Yeah, not many, but but good ones. You've um you've grown, you know, this YouTube channel over the last what, ten years? Ten years. Roughly. Um, from zero to over eight million subscribers. In terms of your growth trajectory, what story does that tell? Um uh, how quickly you grew, how exponential. Was that an S-curve? Was it slow it's, then fast? It's been pretty much slow then fast, somewhat exponential, I'd say. So so right now, um, I, my channel is growing much faster than where it is proportionally. So the, the percentage growth on my channel is really high, like one of the highest on YouTube. Um, and I've only actually got a team of two people in total, to be honest. Wow. So I'm at a stage now where I'm thinking, okay, I need to get more help. I need to get more people doing the things that I shouldn't be doing right now. But I want to keep it as me. Like, I'm very aware that like, I could probably get more numbers if I had people writing my scripts for me and stuff. But there are certain things that I just want to do because I I like them and I think I'm good at them. Mm. Um, And so I want to keep doing those things. But in terms of that, that sort of exponential growth, how long, like, give me the timeframes in terms of how long it took you to get to several different stages. Oh, okay. I've got a tweet, actually. I can find it. Find it for me. Okay. So it took me seven years to hit 1 million subscribers. It took one year to hit 2 million, eight months to hit 3 million, six months to hit 4 million, and then three months to hit 5 million. So that there's, there's definitely been a sort of, you know, a curve. Hockey stick. Yeah. But but I think people, they kind of misplace where that comes from. I think people have this idea that if you're big on YouTube, you'll just keep getting bigger on YouTube. But I think what actually happens is that you're big on YouTube because you're starting to understand what works and therefore you get bigger because you're implementing what works. If that makes sense. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's applicable to every walk of life, right, as well. Mm. As you were saying, I was thinking about everything. Mm. I was thinking about the gym and I was thinking about, you know, your business yeah. and yeah, everything. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting because there are a lot of YouTubers who get big and then stop. Like their growth stops. Yeah. They, they build these big channels and then some, the tectonic plates shift. The algorithm says, okay, we want something else now. And they fall off and they... I don't think a lot of these are actually algorithms changing. I think right from the start, the algorithms have had a very simple goal. And I think they've been able to achieve that. I think that's the creators losing touch. It's, it's whether it's failing to keep up with the competition, because the bar for content is rising all the time, 
or whether it's just neglect of what their audience wants. Like sometimes I've seen creators who they get big and then they're like, oh, this is what my audience wants to see. I'm just going to keep doing that exact same thing the whole time. Or sometimes you get creators who one minute they're making a video about how they make cupcakes, the other time they're making tech videos. And you've got to keep your audience at the front of your mind because, so have you heard this saying that like, create what you want to create and your passion will show through and people will find you? No. Okay, because I've heard it a lot and I actually strongly disagree with it because I think it it makes the creators think that like, they're the prize, they're the customer, when actually it's the viewers. And it's a privilege to be able to create for them, but you can't be complacent about that. They're not going to come to you just because I'm making stuff I like making. There's too many people who are doing that for that to be the case. So you have to really respect people's time and really deliver value to them. In order to be able to adapt to what your audience want, it's got to be a two-way conversation. So how do you have that two-way conversation? Really, I know how you have it one way, but I'm saying, how are you getting, how are you understanding what they want? What are the metrics you're looking at? Is it the comment section? Is it, and again, these aren't just lessons for YouTube. These are lessons for anyone creating any product in the world that is looking to build their customer base. Cause it's the same business. Mm. So there's both, there's explicit and there's implicit feedback. The explicit is someone literally writing, Aaron, this was a great video or Aaron, you should sit a bit further back because your face is too close to the camera. I've had that. That's very useful. But the implicit feedback is is what is most of it. It's what percentage of people who watch this video put a like on it. It's what how like how many minutes of this 20-minute video did they watch and at what point did they drop off? That's an incredibly useful piece of information there. And I used to actually as soon as I changed my attitude from work hard to work smart, these are the things I started looking for. It was like, oh, I said this sentence and there was a drop there. I'm not going to say that sentence again. Clearly that was doing something. And it was trying to understand what about that sentence made people drop off that allowed me to grow as a person and as a channel. So are you really in the weeds like that? You're really looking at every video and looking- I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, it's my background as well. Like I've, I'm a math student. I'm an economics student. I love the data. Um, I think to some extent, the fact that I pay so much attention to it is one thing that really helps me over other YouTubers. Oh, I can tell. I can tell. Mm. Because the answers are there. It's the same in business. Your customers are usually telling you what they want or don't want, but we lead with our hypothesis. Yes. And we're, and our hypothesis is ego, uh, attached to our egos. It's sometimes overly romantic. So we can spend years, as I think I did in my first business, trying to sell my customer, or who, you know, who I thought my customer was, uh, product mm. that they didn't want. And when they told me they didn't want it because of their behavior. You were like, no, you I tried to it. sell it. To them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, no motherfucker, <laughs> I'm going to force you to try, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. and then it was, I talk about this on the, on the podcast. It was actually when I started a Facebook group and realized that the Facebook group was 50 times, a hundred times more um, effective in achieving what I was trying to achieve with my website that I was like, people want to do this behavior on Facebook. I'm trying to force them to do it somewhere they don't want to do it. Just go with what the people want. And that requires you to be low ego, low romance. Mm. There is one caveat, which is that every now and again, people don't know what they want. You know, like if you think about the first iPhone that came out, right? Mm. People at the time, if you'd asked them what they wanted, they would have said, oh, I want a flip phone with maybe a bigger keyboard. And they would have just kept saying that year after year. 
But, but actually, the iPhone completely changed what they wanted. And, and there is a time and place for that as well in YouTube. Sometimes just you have this idea. No one's asked for it, but you just think, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to try it. And you'll very quickly realize if it's the right thing to do. Mm. It's harder to, to argue with the... Um, well, I guess when you're creating something new, there isn't the data. There isn't the prehistoric no, iPhone sales. But that's why you've got to just do it. Try. It's got to start with an experiment and then go into analytical observation. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I guess that's a good uh, good approach. I think everyone can relate to. What's the what are some of the biggest misconceptions of you as a YouTuber that you that you that piss you off? Uh there's a big thing with tech YouTube where like if you say a good thing about a product or a company, the assumption is immediately that you're paid to say that. And I think it's an element of like, I probably just need to communicate better how it works. Like, I'm not paid every time I say a nice sentence about Samsung. They don't just like slip me a couple of a couple of bills. Um, uh, that's that's probably the predominant thing. I, I saw somewhere that you send these companies an email when they offer to give you a product. You letting them know that you won't accept the money, but you will review it if you like it. Yeah. So a lot of the emails I get are actually, would you like to do a paid review? Yeah. And I, I, I can't, with, with, a, with an honest conscience, say yes to a paid review because it's a contradiction. A, a review is a piece that is meant to end with a recommendation. You should buy this or you shouldn't buy this. Mm. And having taken money for that piece... You can't be objective. No, I can't be objective. So there are cases where, yeah, a company said, can we pay you for a review? I've said, no, I'll do a review, but I won't take, I won't take the money. So how do you make money? So you can do sponsors if you do sponsors in the right way. So what I think is the right way is I will take on sponsorship if it is, if I don't have to be conclusive about it, if I can be completely genuine about it, like, like Huel, for example, um, I do sponsorships with Huel, but that is because I was drinking Huel before Huel reached out to me. Mm. So they actually spotted me wearing a Huel t-shirt in one of my videos and they're like, oh, okay, this guy, he likes it already would you like to talk about us? And I said, yeah. Why did you like Huel? <laughs> you, you can do my sponsored. <laughs> no, genuinely, um, why did you like Huel? It, I guess it fits in with my lifestyle. I, uh, you know, being, I care about my time. I, um, I'm not getting paid for this. No, I know. <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> Cheers. Uh, yeah, go, go on, why, why don't we? No, <laughs> No, genuinely, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really curious as to why, why it fit in your lifestyle. It was the same for me. I was a customer for three years mm. before they sponsored the podcast. Similar thing. They were looking for authentic influences, but I'm curious as to why it, it, um, it fit your lifestyle. I think it's this idea of a meal is sometimes for enjoyment, but it's also sometimes just because you need something to eat. Mm. And uh, when you're very busy, you don't care about what it is. Like you just need nutrition you and you just you don't want to be eating crap basically you know you want to just eat something that you feel good about mm. and uh that's what this was i had a friend who got me into it but he he was actually using like full fat milk when he was doing it the whole time Ooh. and he was wondering why uh, he wasn't losing weight right. so i was like try it with water just just yeah, give it a go yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah i don't even have the time to do the, the well i do the protein but i don't I've I've never really been a huge fan of the like powder in the in the cup mix. So I used to do that, and then as soon as I started having the ready to drink ones, now I just have these. Yeah, same. Because they're in the fridge, they're chilled. There's no washing up. It's, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Have you tried the protein? 
Yep. You have. Uh, like the, the strawberries and cream. Oh, right, yeah. It's on top of my fridge over there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so as you, you know, you've achieved a lot in, in business, but also on YouTube. You've, you know, I, I've got a YouTube channel. I've got like 50,000 subscribers. Bear in mind, like 90% of my audience listen off, off YouTube. Um, but if you told me that one day I'd have 8 million subscribers, I'd wonder where my motivation would be to get, to try and get more. I think, well, that's fucking, I mean, nine, that makes no difference. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 10, yeah. like, what, what is your motivation now? What is it? Where does it come from? I think it's this idea of like, I feel like I have a message to share almost. Like tech is fun. Tech is exciting. And it's, it's one of the few industries that's moving forward really fast. Like I, like I look at fashion and, you know, things just go round and round in loops basically. But, but tech, is, tech is a straight line. And so I almost like the idea of just getting people on board with that idea. And so becoming synonymous with the word tech and becoming someone who's like a, a teacher of tech and who, who's a, a fun place to learn tech, that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. So I guess my, my end goal would be to be the tech person. So when someone says tech, you think, oh, that's Aaron Meany. That's uh, Mr. Who's the Boss. You know, he's tech. Go look at him. So you, you, one of your central focuses is becoming synonymous with the word tech um, globally on YouTube as a teacher and educator. Mm. What about the other facets of your life, your personal life? What are, your, what are you aiming at? I think, to be honest, like the things I actually want are fairly simple, all things considered. Like it's not cars or or money or gold brick phones. It's uh, it's just good Good, happy well, if connection. you're not using it, then you can. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask if you still have that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have to send it back. <laughs> I actually do still have it. You still have it, okay. They, they asked me to send it back initially, but then communications got mixed. Yeah, I bet they, they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they couldn't, they yeah, couldn't... If, if someone sent me a gold brick phone, trust me, communi- yeah, I'd stop answering. <laughs> but they, they couldn't get a courier who could insure it. So we're struggling to send it back, basically. I send it over here. I've oh, got a good guy that sends phones back. Send it over here. I'll, I'll take care of it. <laughs> send it over here. I've got a, I've got a guy that's got uh, yeah, best career in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I watched actually one of your past podcasts where you talked about like the idea of we trick ourselves into thinking there's something on the other side, but this is it. Mm. And uh, I'm very aware of that. And I'm very, I'm very happy about it. I don't, I don't need anything else. Like I'm enjoying the process. And as long as I can keep having those times where my friends are over and we're playing video games together and we're laughing on the couch and, you know, I can spend good quality time with my parents going out for dinners. That's all I need. But then going back to your professional goal about being synonymous synonymous with tech, if you were to achieve that goal, Hmm. what would it do for you? Put a smile on my face. (laughs) <laughs> Probably not much more, I'm going to be honest. Like, I think goals like that, they're, they're not meant to be achieved in a way. Like, just having the goal gives you a purpose. Like, I already have the income I need to to have the social life and the kind of like, the things that actually make me happy. And so this goal is something to give the rest of my life a purpose. And it is a goal that you can almost not measure. Yeah. Which I know is against all uh, goal-setting uh, it's like it's against goal setting 101. I know you're meant to have like smart goals and all that, but um... no, I think it's great. I think more people should have goals that are. I said this on my Instagram the other day, incompletable, because that gives you that stops you from that sort of mountaintop moment where you then need another goal 
to find your orientation in life and to find your direction. So those big incompletable goals, I think are the best where you can't ever measure if, if it came true. Yeah. Um, which I, I think, I think is, I think is amazing, but it's, but it is interesting that achieving the goal would basically do nothing for you. Yeah. <laughs> which is crazy when you think about it. But, but I'm loving the process. And that's, you know, like, yeah. so every time an article gets written about me or I get referenced or someone shares it, I look at it and I'm like, oh, wow, this is a step towards my goal. So even if I never achieve that goal, and even if when I do achieve that goal, or if I do achieve that goal, I don't care that much, it's created a structure such that I can really enjoy the process. And that's probably the, probably the secret to professional happiness, I guess. Isn't it? It sounds like a, it sounds nuts. It sounds crazy to have a goal you can't complete and that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it does. I can see it. <laughs> Could you imagine that book? So the, the key to being happy is to set goals you can't complete that don't matter. <laughs> that don't actually matter. Um, but I, I think you're left with no other choice when you get to a point where you've ticked off those Maslowian needs of like food, shelter, security. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Nothing yeah. beyond that point really matters. It, there was a point when I was like, oh, if you get 100,000 subscribers, you've made it, you've done. And so when you've got 80 times that, there is a point where it's like, this isn't, numbers don't make you happy. You realize that quite quickly. Mm. Well, listen, thank you so much for uh, being so honest and open with me today. I've had such a um, enjoyable, diverse conversation with you. And it's a, it's an honor to get to meet you. And to, I was looking at your, your story and you, you are an anomaly in so many ways because um, you're, you're incredibly self-aware and conscious now. And clearly that's not always been the case when you're in that pre-breakdown phase. Similar with me, I wasn't, I was, I was a puppet driven by society. Society was the puppet master and my insecurities from my childhood. But you've reached that point of like self-awareness that you know those goals aren't going to matter and that you know why you're doing it. You know that balance is key and you're able to allocate your time in accordance with your long-term values, not any sort of external or insecure um goals or desires. So I think that's remarkable. And I think the reason why I wrote my book and a lot of the reason why I do this podcast is to share stories like yours. So thank you for your time. It is an oh, honor to spend, spend this time with you. And uh, I'm, I, I'm really excited to see you become synonymous with um, tech across the world. And I think you're, I mean, you're clearly on the way to doing that. It's remarkable what you've achieved. Oh, I appreciate it. And as a small little irrelevant YouTuber, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to need some tips from you off camera about how I can, uh, continue to do what I'm doing but to be fair like you've, you've answered it for me like we enjoy it and uh yeah we, we celebrate like the little wins and stuff but we're doing this I think I think I speak for the team because like meeting people like you and doing this is fun uh, I'll give you one little nugget now please actually. more than one if you have them <laughs> I would try and add some structure interesting I think a lot of the people watching this podcast are very ambitious people who who want the next thing mm. and I think your videos could potentially highlight what's coming mm. and with some sort of ramping intensity to keep those kinds of ambitious people who want the next thing engaged. Interesting. Have you watched Hot Ones? Yes, The Wings. The Wings show. Yeah. And ah, the reason perfect. it's so interesting is that you know the wings are getting hotter each yeah. time. And that structure allows me to just like watch right till the end, no matter what they're talking about. That's really, really good feedback because watch time matters is so critical to yeah. YouTube, right? And the algorithm. So incentivizing people when they, in the first five minutes to stay till minute 55 yeah. by letting them know there's something spicy over there. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> makes a lot, a lot, a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm going to speak to Jack who's behind me and we're going to figure out a way to conduct that experiment.
Yeah. Any other tips before I go? Like, I know well, you've yes, looked at my YouTube so, channel and you've thought, <laughs> what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> one, uh, one thing I've started thinking about recently, actually, is... Uh, you can just say it was something you saw. <laughs> uh, I did a big watch through of the Marvel films. Okay. Start to finish, the yeah. whole universe. And I realized that, like, these movies are... Um, they are self-contained episodes. So you can watch one end to end and you will get a character arc. You will get villains and heroes and the heroes will beat the villains. But they're also part of a bigger picture. And it made me realize that like every time I finished one of them, I wanted to watch the next one because it was all contributing to this bigger picture. It was like this, this bigger universe. Mm. And so more and more, I'm starting to think of like my videos as contributions to a universe and how to actually link between them in ways that people feel like they need to watch all of them or well, no, more like they want to watch all of them to get the full, the full picture. So oftentimes now I will actually have inter-video jokes, things that actually span multiple videos. Like I've had one where I finished one video by throwing a phone up in the air and I caught it in the next one. Mm. I've had other times where between three sets of videos, someone started throwing stuff at me during the videos with increasing intensity. And these kinds of like multi-video storylines are actually really, really powerful. Again, because of the algorithm, right? Yeah, I mean, it just makes people want to watch you more. It makes it feel not complete by just watching one video. I met YouTube and YouTube said to me that um, <clears throat> when people go on a streak of watching multiple videos on YouTube, and you'll know that, I was like, I'm, I don't know why I'm talking to you about fucking YouTube tips. But they said to me, when people go on a streak of watching multiple videos on YouTube, then the first video in that streak gets the credit, basically. So if you can create content that is episodic... Hmm. then it will, all of the videos will perform better. So what you're talking about there is kind of like interlinking narratives throughout multiple videos so that one video doesn't stand alone. You have to, yeah, that's really interesting. But listen, thank you for your time. I've had so much of it and it's, um, it's a huge honor. I don't know how busy you are. So it's a huge honor that you've Likewise. given some of your allocation today to, to this. Cause I'm, you, I know you're someone that understands the value of your time. So I really, really appreciate you. And I'm, I don't have to tell people where to find you. Um, you're welcome to <laughs> never, I mean, I mean, type in your name anywhere and you'll, and they'll find, find you and your work on every social platform. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a huge pleasure. It's, it's been incredible. Thanks, Steve. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.